This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Annie Reese. And today we're doing our second part in a two-part Butterganza. Extrava butter? Ooh. I don't like extrava butter. (laughs) (laughs) I like that a lot. New new words being coined every day. We are the music makers and we are the dreamers of the dreams. Yes. Um, In in, uh, last week's episode, we talked about the physical composition of butter and, and also the history of butter. The rich, creamy, spreadable history of butter. Yes. And, uh, and, and today we're going to get into how it's made and some stuff about margarine and other things. But let's, let's dive right into that how it's made part. Like we said at the top of the last show, we did get to visit a, a small creamery and, uh, that, that one, that one produces batches that, that are quite impressive. Um, about 380 pounds of butter to a batch, but, the industrial butter churns that happen are much, much larger than that. But the basic process is still the same. Essentially, cream is separated from milk and pasteurized. Then it's cooled. Then is the time for churning. Churns these days are these huge aluminum drums that are that are spun on the horizontal axis by motors, like a clothes dryer, like a clothes dryer that fits thousands of gallons of stuff inside it. So they pipe in, thousands of gallons of cream and start spinning it. And and there's a porthole, usually on one end of the cylinder, so that you can keep an eye on it. 
Within an hour, the fats come together and the liquids separate out. They drain off the buttermilk, because that's what those liquids are, and and rinse the butter with cold water. Then they start the butterfat spinning again to, to work it further and to mix in salt if the batch is going to be salted. The butter clumps together in a huge mass at this point and is pulled out or spun out of the drum, weighed into batches, and then uh, molded and packaged for industry and consumer use. And these these batches that they're handling are uh, like 1,500 to 5,000 pounds of butter at a time, which is about uh, 680 kilograms to uh, 2,270 kilograms. Wow. I mean, and like that, that 380 pounds was quite sufficient for breaking my brain. So yeah. I kind of can't, again, I'm like, oh, industry, it's big. It's huge. Yes. In addition to this type of machine, though, there are also more automated machines called continuous flotation churns, which look a little bit like, uh, like, like Willy Wonka's everlasting gobstopper machine, except instead of candy coming out at the end nozzle, you get a continuous ribbon of butter. Oh, man. That sounds crazy to yeah. me. Uh, in a, in a very kind of beautiful, disturbing way. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, how it's made mm-hmm. currently. Let's talk about margarine briefly, shall we? We shall. Just briefly. So in 1869, Emperor Louis Napoleon III held a competition offering a reward to anyone who could come up with a cheaper alternative to butter for the soldiers and the less rich than he. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was this, it was kind of a social welfare thing to feed the poor or the Navy. Maybe mostly the Navy. Probably mostly the Navy. Yeah. But they tried to paint it in a way. Yeah, it's social welfare. It's lovely. Yeah. French chemist Hippolyte Mejmoriès answered the call with a beef tallow spread he patented as oleomargarine. He took the name from a Greek word that means pearl-like, uh, but... Nobody seemed to appreciate it very much. Nope. And Mej sold the patent to a Dutch company called Unilever, which to this day is one of the largest producers of margarine. He never made a profit off his invention, though, and died poor in 1880. Yeah. I wanted to say here that not all margarine is necessarily made of beef tallow. No. That was, that was his invention, but it can be made with any type of oil that's been transmogrified so that it's solid at room temperature, which most oils by definition are not. In these early days, margarine was made of animal fats that had been emulsified with water and skim milk, all of which is definitely cheaper than going to all the bother of making butter. Right. Margarine reached the United States in the 1870s. It really caught on, especially as a a few years of bad weather in Europe made it very profitable to export butter. Or margarine that you're just selling as butter. Yeah. So due in part to some bad press from this, the dairy industry stepped in and they lobbied hard against it. So hard. Yeah. Succeeding in getting the federal government to instate the Margarine Act in 1886, which called for licensing fees and restrictive taxes on margarine. Some states didn't allow the sale of margarine at all. (laughs) And by 1902, 
32 states passed laws prohibiting margarine's use of yellow dye because they were using it to make it appear more like butter. Ah. Yeah. And New Hampshire, Vermont, and South Dakota required margarine to be dyed a very, very unappetizing pink. Who? Yeah. The Supreme Court overturned these so-called pink laws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what they were called. But the yellow margarine ban stayed in place. Margarine manufacturers later got around this by selling its product with two capsules of yellow dye that you that you manually like like as a consumer would mix it in. Wow. Yeah. America's Dairyland, Wisconsin, was the last to get rid of this law in 1967. Wow. So not that long ago. And speaking of Wisconsin, in 1955, Wisconsin hosted um, a senatorial blindfolded taste test between margarine and butter. Nothing can go wrong here, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. All the senators got it right, except the loudly pro-butter Gordon Roseslip, whose wife had been illegally illegally replacing his butter with yellow margarine due to her concerns about his heart. <laughs> Man, imagine finding something like that out. I know. I don't Ooh. think, I'm not sure if I could forgive. That's, yeah, I'm sure they had quite the discussion after this. <laughs> Awkward. Yeah. Um, this stuff you missed in history class, by the way, has an entire episode about all of this called Butter v. Margarine. And it's pretty excellent. So you should, you should check it out if you want more, more details about all of that. Yeah. Otherwise, this would be an episode about margarine. We just wanted to give the butter related margarine facts. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just a little nuggets. <laughs> the pink laws. The margarine nuggets. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, science was advancing as it tends to do. Mm-hmm. Um, chemists found a way to make plant based oils solid at room temperature. And plant based oils are, are chemically a little bit different from animal oils and that they're not as excited about doing that thing. They, <laughs> they, they don't want to clump as much as animal oils do. Mm-hmm. Um, the process is called hydrogenation because it involves hydrogen. And it really is a great way to cut costs because plant-based oils are even cheaper than animal fats. Plus, you're preserving those oils because uh, liquid oils go rancid relatively quickly, but margarine keeps pretty well. Yeah. Thanks in part to scarcity during World War II and the replacement of animal fats with vegetable oils, margarine passed butter in popularity in the 1950s. And by 1970, Americans consumed an average of 10 pounds of margarine a year. And that probably also has something to do with what we talked about before. That was around the time when sugar was like, fat, bad. (laughs) Stay away from butter. No fat ever. Eat more sugar. Yes. And margarine was perceived as the healthier alternative to butter at the time. Mm -hmm. More on that in a moment. Yes, because the pendulum has since swung the other way, with butter consumption surpassing margarine in the United States in 2014. It took until 2014? It did. This Ah. is very recent, uh, with an average of 5.6 pounds a year per person. And that's still way lower than the 18 pound per person per year average of the Early 1900s, 18 pounds per person. Just think about that for a minute. Of butter? Yeah. Of, of butter? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with these shifting health concerns because people were so worried about fat and now people are more worried about fake 
Like what's in their food? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why is this thing man-made? Okay, so speaking of those health concerns, though, mm-hmm. we're going to get to them right after we take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, as we discussed at length in our episode on sugar and health, and as we were just alluding to a moment ago, fats like butter are not the dietary demons that we once thought. Or rather that we were led to believe by decades of willful propaganda from the sugar industry. Thanks, sugar. But how does butter specifically shape up health-wise? Let me tell you. Please do. The modern consensus, dietary-wise, is that plant-based fats are healthier than animal fats. 
That simple sentence actually contains a whole lot, though, so let's unpack it. In order to do that, we have to go back to some of the research we talked about in our episode about sugar in your health. In the 1950s, one Ansel Keys started working on a thing called the Seven Countries Study, which documented the huge cultural differences in rates of coronary heart disease. Why do people from some regions get more sick and die of heart disease more frequently? Hmm. He found that saturated fats were associated with greater risk of heart disease, but that total fat intake was not. And this study formed the, it was really revolutionary, not entirely the best, but, but no. it, it formed the basis for decades more research into how the fats we eat affect our, well, our health and rats' health and monkeys' health, because a lot of the research is done on a bunch of different animals. Uh, but okay. In that sugar episode, we talk about how some of the research was either faulty to begin with due to researchers like Keys selecting their study populations a little too carefully um, and or that the research was twisted by the sugar industry to vilify fat. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason why sugar marketers were able to twist the research was that the scientists weren't really looking into sugar versus fat. They were looking into types of fat versus other types of fat. And that key finding of keys, if you'll pardon the pun, is that saturated fats are bad and other fats are okay. And that kind of subtlety is unfortunately very easy to twist when you're just trying to sell whatever isn't fat. Right. And also, unfortunately, that the more research that went into fat, the more complicated it got. Surprise! Science gives us answers, but they're not usually simple ones. Come on, science. Oh, I know, right? Get your get your stuff together. Jeez. <laughs> so over the next few decades, researchers figured out that fats are moved around in our bodies by a few types of stuff called lipoproteins. High-density lipoproteins, called HDLs, you may have heard of them, take fats out of your cells and send them to your liver to get them out of your body. Low-density lipoproteins, called LDLs, put fats into your cells. And everybody needs some LDLs, but having too many floating around was found to be associated with a greater risk of heart disease. Researchers also figured out that the types of fats you eat affects your balance of LDLs and HDLs. Stuff called unsaturated fats tend to lower your LDLs and raise your HDLs. That's great. Yay. That's the best. Less of the stuff that you don't want and more of the stuff that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unsaturated fats are found in stuff like nuts and seeds and fish. Saturated fats, on the other hand, raise both LDLs and HDLs. And saturated fats is the category that butter is in, along with other mammal products, pork, beef, dairy, and coconuts, strangely. Hmm. And the more research that people do, the more it seems like the raising of both LDLs and HDLs simultaneously is kind of fine. Oh, okay. Eating saturated fats doesn't necessarily increase your risk of heart disease. However, replacing some saturated fats in your diet with unsaturated fats does seem to lower your risk of heart disease. Hmm. Clear as mud? Yeah. Just like all human and health things. Sure. It's, but, but, okay. So, so the end, the end result is that butter is fine. I mean, you know, don't overdo it because remember that it's a really high calorie food. Yeah. Uh, but hey, what about margarine? Oh, what about it? The fats that margarine primarily contains are neither saturated nor unsaturated. They're this whole third category called trans fats. Remember how I said that margarine is made of oil that's been transmogrified to be solid at room temperature? 
The process of changing the chemical structure of fats changes the way that our bodies interact with those fats. Uh, so trans fats wind up raising your levels of quote-unquote harmful LDLs and lowering your good HDLs. So that's terrible. Just awful. That's the worst. I don't want that. Uh, you, you really don't. And it's really, it's kind of offensive when you think about it because you've turned relatively healthy, unsaturated, plant-based fats into something that's unhealthy. And research indicates that there's no safe level of trans fat consumption. Even small amounts increase your risk of heart disease. Oh. And trans fats also have been shown to contribute to insulin resistance, which increases your risk of diabetes. That's upsetting. So, butters, no. And margarine, I might not recommend eating. Yeah. It's, it's always, it's sad when people are trying to make the healthy choice and it just ends up being unhealthier. But well, again, it's, it's, it's all complicated. It's so complicated and yeah. there's so much about our bodies that we don't know yet and that we have only started scratching the surface into figuring out. It's, it's, we're, we're complicated in there. Yeah. And then all the bits are small. Yeah. And I think unique in a lot of cases. Yeah. Like person to person, it's really hard to, hard to, um, it's hard to make a generic statement. Yeah. Yeah. I see you getting sad. Yeah. E even all you out there in podcast land, I can see you too. <gasps> she can. Oh no. Oh, that, that, that's, <laughs> that's not, that's not less creepy. I was trying to turn this around to a happy place. A flavor science. Flavor science does sound fun. There are hundreds of flavor compounds at work in butter, but the primary ones are called diacetyl and acetoin. Like we said, a billion years ago at the very first part of this butter extravaganza, um, those, those two compounds are excreted by the lactic acid bacteria that go to work in cultured butters. They, they eat lactose, milk, sugar, and excrete alcohol and these flavor compounds. So if you want to produce a butter flavor artificially, you can either culture just a whole crap ton of bacteria or yeast and collect the relative compounds. Um, that's called natural butter flavoring on labels. Or you can synthesize the molecules in a lab, and that's, that's what you see as artificial butter flavoring. Diacetyl isn't just a butter thing, by the way. It's also made during fermentation in some beers, and it's what gives Chardonnays a buttery flavor. Yes. And, uh, popcorn, that smell, yes? Yeah, yeah, in, in microwave popcorn. Um, and you might have heard about microwave popcorn causing health problems. What? It's, it's, it's true that in some factory workers who breathe in like a whole lot of diacetyl, uh, say at a microwave popcorn factory, there is an increased risk of lung disease. But that's not to say that eating microwave popcorn will cause you problems or that it's bad to breathe in the amount that you'd make from popping a bag in your in your microwave occasionally. Okay. You're going to be okay. People who follow me in any kind of social media know that popcorn is one of my favorite things. So <laughs> this is key information you, for me. You got you, you got so worried. I know. The look on my face was just horror. I was, I was like, oh, no, I, I tried to make it better and then I failed. <laughs> That's OK. And before we leave you today, we wanted to go through some some cooking tips and some just, I don't know, extraneous butter cultural notes that we that we found in our in our journeys of the internets. Uh, but first, let's take one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. 
This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Mm -hmm. So first, some butter cooking tips. Butter temperature is very important. Yes. Yes. We talked about the importance of cold butter when making a pie crust in the apple pie episode. Yeah. And and the idea here is that you want to coat as many flour particles as possible with fat so that they won't absorb too much other liquid and thus get gluten-y. Mm-hmm. But you also want those fat particles to be firm so that they stay chunky right until they melt in the oven. Um, that's because the, the, the water content of the butter will evaporate, creating these lovely stiff air pockets. And the fat content is absorbed by the flour, kind of, kind of moisturizing it. Hmm. Um, thus you get a tender yet flaky crust. Oh, that sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. When you're creaming together butter and sugar, 
the butter should ideally be softened at room temperature, not melted. No, because because creaming is a whipping process that creates a structure out of the butter and the sugar with lots of air pockets throughout. Uh, when you then add egg into the mixture, the, the egg distributes itself into those pockets, which just stabilizes the dough. Yes, and if you do have to melt the butter... It's best to let it cool a bit so it's not hot, especially if there are eggs involved. Yeah, because you don't want to just scramble the eggs as soon as right. you put the butter in. That would be very sad. Yes. You want to pay attention to salted versus unsalted. Mm-hmm. I've made that mistake before. Oh, yeah. The- Although if you do accidentally buy salted and you meant to buy unsalted, just don't add salt right. later on in the recipe. Yes. The milk solids in butter mean it burns more quickly than other fats. It starts to smoke at 350 degrees Fahrenheit, about 177 degrees Celsius. So if you're going to use it in sautéing, it's better to add it towards the end in combination with something else, another oil, um, or else use clarified butter ghee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of of those, those milk solids, mm-hmm. browned butter. So good. Oh, it's so good Ugh. in cookies and sauces and basically everything. Now, if you've never experienced this minor miracle, all you gotta do is melt butter over low to medium heat in a, in a light colored potter skillet that'll let you keep an eye on it better. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Um, because you're, you're gonna continue cooking it gently until the water in the butter boils off and the milk solids separate out from the fat in these little flecks that are gonna turn golden brown. And, and, and yeah, so you, so you're watching for the golden brown turning of the flecks. You don't want to burn it. Mm-hmm. And it gives butter this amazing, beautiful, rich, nutty flavor. Yeah. And the, the first time I made it, the recipe I was following, it said, you'll know when you smell the like caramel taste, <laughs> taste, smell. <laughs> and, um, I, I'm one of those people that are, I'm like, I won't, there won't be a distinct There won't be smell. anything like that. And there was. I was like, wow. <laughs> Suddenly. It's, it's lovely. And, it is. And by the way, if you, if you want to, if, if you need chilled butter for a recipe, but you want to brown the butter first, just brown it and then chill it and then use it as directed. Wow. I've never done this before, but I intend to try. <laughs> uh, also, okay. Back to Wisconsin butter laws. Uh huh. And thanks to Instagram user binary pineapple. For the tip off on this one, also thanks for making an amazing username. Yes. Um, they, they also mentioned that their mother-in-law has stories about her neighbors crossing state lines to Illinois to buy margarine to smuggle home. It was no joke, man. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, no. So, so, okay. So there was a law put in place in Wisconsin in 1953 amidst all of that margarine kerfuffle, um, that mandates that all butter sold within the state must be evaluated by a state appointed panel. The panel grades the butter based on 32 quality points, and selling butter that has not been thus graded in Wisconsin can carry a fine of up to a thousand bucks and a jail term of up to six months. Ooh. Back in February, uh, Kerrygold, which is an Irish butter producer, delicious product, mm-hmm. had to stop exporting its butter to Wisconsin because of this law. In March, a local civil advocacy group, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, got involved. They filed suit with the state government to get Kerrygold back on store shelves, claiming that the law was suppressing consumer choice. And then in April, 
Uh, an Amish dairy out of Ohio called Minerva filed a federal lawsuit after being told to either fly in state-appointed graders or to stop selling their product in Wisconsin. Yeah, Amish Ohio dairy called Minerva. Yeah. What's wrong with you? How dare you? <laughs> so, so yeah, so we're, <laughs> we're, we're living in exciting legal butter times, I suppose, for, for Wisconsin. Yeah. And I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. Yeah. And this is the culmination of, of almost a hundred years of, of butter battle. Butter battle. That sounds so excellent. <laughs> Another fun cultural butter fact. Butter sculpture. <laughs> butter, butter sculpture? Yeah. In 1876, Dreaming Iolanthi kicked off this strange, uniquely American take on butter sculpture when it made waves at the Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. Thousands of people forked over 25 cents to see this butter sculpture preserved with constantly renewed buckets of ice. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the New York Times wrote, The harmony of the face is exquisite. The ear is quite a marvel of delicate manipulation. (laughs) It was a big deal. And the artist, Caroline Shock Brooks, went on tour after the success and eventually settled down in Washington, D.C., where she did portraits of presidents and other politicians, portraits out of butter. In butter. Yeah. Okay. Her work culminated in a massive portrait of a wealthy family called La Rosa that took eight years. What? Yeah, and was later sculpted more permanently out of marble. But it's still a thing. Uh, with the invention of refrigeration, butter sculpting increased in popularity. <laughs> it saw ups and downs as butter became scarce during things like the Great Depression and World War II. And in 1957, Norma Duffy Lyon started a tradition of sculpting uh, a cow made out of butter each year for the Iowa State Fair until 2006. She also did pop cultural and political figures like Elvis and Obama. She came out of retirement to do Obama. In oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. That's delightful. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, and of course, if you want to, you can make your own butter at home. You can. Uh, though it's so much work that we're not entirely sure why you would. Uh, you don't even need a churn though. You can just shake a cup of heavy cream in a quart-sized mason jar for like 15 minutes. Um, until the butter forms up and then rinse it with cold water a couple times and knead it until uh, all the air and water pockets are, are gone. And then it's butter. Yeah. If any of you try it, please let us know. It sounds like a good arm workout. I, mean, I know. I get tired after like making a cocktail, a cocktail shaker, 30 seconds in. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think that was enough. <laughs> I think it was enough shaking. That's, that's shaken. <laughs> That about uh, brings us to the end of butter, oh, the butter ganza. I, I never thought that I would be sick of reading about butter, but but at this very current moment, I kind of am. It was a lot. It was quite a bit of stuff to knead through. There's a pun there somewhere. We didn't make. There were a lot of puns we could have made, and we didn't. So not not nearly enough. It's true. Yes. Um, <laughs> but this brings us to our listener mail. Yes. Listener mail. Emanuele wrote, I'm writing in particular 
with regard to your episode on French cuisine, in which you referred to the bechamel sauce as a traditional element of French cuisine. However, allegedly the sauce was first mentioned in a 15th century book called The Medici Cuisine, referring to the Medici family that ruled over Florence during the Renaissance. Also known as salsa cola, glue sauce, the sauce was bought to France by Caterina de' Medici, a member of the family who became the Queen of France, marrying King Henry II. As well as being a patron of the arts, she is also credited for introducing a lot of new elements in the then French cuisine, for example, artichokes, lettuce, broccoli, as well as pasta, Parmesan cheese, and even the fork, although some of these claims have been debunked by most food historians. Huh. Yeah. That makes me really want to research Caterina Medici and her uh, impact on French cuisine. Absolutely. That, um, so maybe that, that could be an episode. Why not? Probably will be. Sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, speaking of butter puns, I, I wanted to give a shout out to Evan on Twitter, who um, I, I posted that, that we're researching for this massive two-parter about butter. And they responded, so would you say you are churning out the episode? <laughs> and then... Followed up with, you butter believe I'm excited. I'll spread the news. Hope I'm not milking this too much. I'm on a roll. Oh, Evan, that is excellent. That was so beautiful. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, uh, another email that we got, Daryl wrote in about a fake or chemical apple pie saying, fake apple pie is awesome. I first made this in seventh grade science class and our teacher called it not so apple apple pie. Now I make it every year on March 14th for Pie Day. I always make sure to tag my teacher on my Facebook photo post of the pie every year. I love doing this because I make it with my kids and they think it is so cool and fun to eat, especially with ice cream. That sounds like an awesome seventh grade science class experiment. Yes, that is a beautiful tradition. Yes, I do love it. You share it with your kids. Probably they'll share it with theirs. The the fake apple pie tradition shall continue. Yes. It's beautiful. And he shared a picture of the pie, and it had uh, cutouts of uh, pie, the numbers. Of, the, of this, oh, oh. Along the edge oh of the pie. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh. It was pretty awesome. I never make pies fancy. I feel bad. I know. I take the a little lazy way out, but they do taste good. Yes. Thank you to both of you for writing in and for Evan great puns on Twitter. Yes, yes. If you would like to write in to us, we have an email address. It is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. We also have uh, social media accounts on Facebook and Twitter. We are foodstuffhsw. And on Instagram, we are at foodstuff. Further thanks to our audio engineer, Alex Williams, who's very patient and doesn't have a butter-related nickname yet. Yet. Uh, But yeah, so thank you so much for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. 
And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 